So, once upon a time, there was no NDP or Green Party. There were no liberals or conservatives. There was no charter of rights and freedoms. I guess there weren't really too many rights of any kind for anyone. There was no freedom of religion in the way that we think of freedom of religion. Once upon a time, there was just Rome, a republic that had transitioned into an empire under the leadership of Caesar Augustus, the very first emperor of Rome. And as he ruled, there was a baby born in Judea, in Bethlehem. And the fame and the renown of this baby would eventually eclipse and re- the, the fame and renown of the first Roman emperor. But it's bigger than that. The fame and the renown of this little Jewish baby would eventually eclipse the fame and renown of every Roman emperor put together. And he would stand against the injustice of the empire and the duplicity and the hypocrisy of the temple. He would teach that we are to love our neighbors, that we are to love our enemies, that we are to turn the other cheek. We are to forgive. And eventually he was betrayed by a friend, condemned by the temple, crucified by the empire. And today, especially today, he is worshipped throughout the world. And once upon a time, not too long after that, Christians would gather early in the first week, first day of the week, and they would sing a hymn to Christ, and they would share a story, perhaps a fragment of a letter that they had received from one of his followers. And they would renew together their vow of chastity and fidelity. They would renew their oath to be men and women above reproach, to be honest, to work hard. And in those little gatherings in the courtyards or under some trees, you would find both masters and slaves, men and women, children, farmers, merchants, Jews and Gentiles, Greeks, Romans, and even soldiers. And these little pockets of people, as they gathered, they would would remind each other that they believed some of the most unbelievable things. That God is spirit, not stone. They believed that every single person had intrinsic value, not assigned value. And they believed, and this put them at odds with the rest of their culture, they believed that the time for animal sacrifice had passed. They too were betrayed by friends. They too were condemned by the temple. And they were persecuted by the empire. And their influence spread like an airborne disease. Now it's our turn. Someday, one day, our generation of Christianity will be a once upon a time story. And I wonder what the story will be told about us. Because we, are, we do not go 
to church. We are the church. We are stewards of faith for our generation. So today as we wrap up a series that we've been in called Tough as Nails, I want to take you to a narrative in the, in the book of Acts that presents us a distinct challenge. And the reason it is so challenging is because it reminds me, and hopefully it reminds all of us, um, that there was once a version of Christianity that was awe-inspiring. Why is it that people used to, used to lean in to hear about Christianity, but now many people lean away? The story we're, we're going to uh, look at takes place probably two months after Jesus was crucified. Not two years, not 20 years, not 120 years. We're going to visit Acts chapter 4. And if you're new to Christianity or new to church, this whole thing, Acts is an ancient manuscript that records the acts of the apostles or the, the actions of those who follow Jesus. And it takes place after Jesus was crucified. So just so we can be clear right up front, today is not a Bible lesson. Um, today we're not going to be looking at a Bible story. This really has nothing to do with the Bible. This is an incident in history that happened about two months after Jesus was crucified. The manuscript was written by a, a, a doctor, a man named Luke, who uh, clarifies right at the beginning of his work that he has thoroughly investigated everything that he writes about. He's interviewed many eyewitnesses, and eventually he would actually be involved in the trips that went around the Mediterranean Rim with the Apostle Paul. He was personally involved in a number of the stories that he has compiled. Paul planted some of the very first churches in Greece, uh, Greek and Roman cities, and to do that, he had to penetrate into what was a tremendously anti-Christian culture, and he did it successfully. The person that wrote that, that document, this, uh, the person who chronicled all these things that happened, his name is Luke, he was an eyewitness to these things. And so Luke tells us that immediately following the resurrection, when Christianity began to spread into the city of Jerusalem and into the entire region, there were a lot of, of questions. Maybe you have questions too. What about and how come and where? And... But there were Jesus sightings that were happening everywhere in the area. And then eventually the apostles, the closest group that followed Jesus, became the centerpiece. They became the spokesmen for the new movement called The Way. It wasn't called Christianity until a long time after that. And so let me give you the setup for the, uh, the Acts 4 incident that we will look at. There's Peter and John, two of Jesus' disciples, and they decide to go to the temple because they want to pray. And so the Jewish temple is uh, about 34 acres with buildings on it and then a wall around that. And so they go to the temple to pray, and as they walk in, they pass by a man who has been lame from birth. He's over 40 years old. And that meant that most of the people who were lived in the vicinity of the temple or, or, or came to the temple, they had seen this man begging outside the temple numerous times over a period of decades. And then they go into the temple, and as they go, he's begging, and he asks them for a donation, and they say, well... We, we, we can't give you any gold or silver because we don't have any. And instead, they heal the man. And he, and he stands up. And he's walking for the first time in his life. 
And he follows them up and into the, uh, onto the temple mount. And, and people see this gentleman uh, walking, and then they kind of look at each other, and they're thinking, hey, isn't, isn't that the guy? Isn't that the guy we just walked past? And sure enough, it is. So this causes a kerfuffle. And we have a group of people gathering. And, and then before you know it, the group turns into a crowd. And so Peter takes this opportunity to preach. And this becomes a problem because he's preaching about Jesus inside the temple. And so the crowd gathers and Peter begins to preach and the, the whole thing gets louder and louder and louder. And now the temple authorities come over and they say, hey, hold on here, break it up, move along. What's going on? There's nothing to see here. Disperse, right? And they come to say, what's all this commotion about? Why is there noise? Why is there a gathering? And well, lo and behold, here are some Jesus followers. And they are talking about Jesus. And this Jesus name just keeps coming up again and again. And didn't we get rid of him? Right? And, and, and people are all over there. They're talking about these sightings of Jesus that have happened here and here and there. But now here, there are two men who were central to that, that, that team, that message of Jesus, and central to the ministry of Jesus. And now they are back, but they're not just back. Now they're in the temple and they're causing a disturbance. They're drawing a crowd. It's late in the afternoon and Peter and John are arrested and they're put in jail. That didn't go well. Keep in mind, Peter and John had been arrested by the very same people that arrested Jesus. This is just about two months ago, okay? So that would be like as if we were talking about Peter and, and John in June, happening, okay? So the two months ago would be April, which is now. Peter and John saw Jesus arrested, beaten, tried, crucified. That would be Friday, right? And now they are probably in the very same jail in June, arrested by the very same people, and they know how that story went two months ago, April. They might have come to the end of their road trip in earnest pursuit of Christ. So the next day, Peter and John are brought out and, and before the whole Jewish Roman council, they, or the Jewish ruling council. They bring them all in, all the big guns, and Annas is there, a.k.a. the high priest, and his son-in-law Caiaphas, also a high priest alternate, Annas' sons, and together they kind of rotate the high priesthood around. It's a family-controlled thing, and all the leaders... All the people that had been there for Jesus' trial, well, they brought them all back. Bring the whole band back together, right? Because here are two of Jesus' followers, and they just won't shut up. And so they ask, what's up with you guys? Why won't you just leave this alone? Why can't you just move on? Don't you get it? You lost we won. And there, in front of the very people who crucified Jesus, Peter begins to preach again. And there he goes. And he's off. And he's talking about Jesus again. And he says to these men, he kind of looks at them straight on, eyeball to eyeball. And he says, you crucified him. And God raised him. Then at the very end of this little speech in front of the ruling council, where they would decide their fate, 
Peter ends with an extraordinarily offensive statement. And that's where I want to start. So follow this with me. Acts chapter 4, starting at verse 12. Salvation is found in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given to mankind by which we must be saved. So he's in a room, figure about 20 people are there. These are the people who are going to side his fate. He might leave today, life or death, right? This is not a move, toward, move towards calming those people down. Listen to what he says, right? How narrow is that, right? I mean, is that even fair? If you're not a Christian, this might very well be a reason that you're not a Christian. How can we be so narrow? Uh, it's not very progressive, is it? How can you be so sure? If you, stay, if you say stuff like this, it is possible that you might just offend someone. We say that there's only one way. How can we say that Jesus is the only way? This is so narrow. But we didn't make it up. Peter, a close friend, a close follower of Jesus, in a room in front of a group of people who are going to decide his fate, they are going to decide whether he lives or he dies. Peter says to them directly, you crucified him. God raised him. There is no other name under heaven by which we must be saved. But I suggest that we cut Peter and John a little bit of slack, all right? As narrow as this is, just remember that they had just seen their teacher, their friend, their rabbi beaten, crucified, dead, buried. And then a few days later, they had breakfast with him on the beach. So they're a little bit excited, all right? And when you have breakfast with a man who was dead a couple of days ago, you say stuff like this, right? Yes, it's probably offensive, and yes, it's probably narrow, but this is what they said because this is what they believed. And suddenly, these two men who had run for cover, right? They ran as fast as they could. Peter, who denied even knowing Jesus, is gathered with the same group of people now that had Jesus crucified. And he looks them in the eye and he tells them, you're guilty of murdering and crucifying the Son of God. But have no fear. God has already raised him from the dead. So regardless of what you say and regardless of what you do and regardless of what you decide about us, you need to know, Caiaphas, you need to know, Annas, and all your sons and all the other people who are gathered here, there is no other name under heaven by which a person can be saved. Luke continues, verse 13. When they saw the courage of Peter and John, and you guys, you saw what we did with your master, right? You know the influence that we have with Rome, right? All we have to do is march you down, put you in front of Pilate and say, hey, Pilate, I know, I thought we were done, but we're not. So just one more thing, just a quick little thing. If we just have a couple, couple more executions, we're going to get this whole thing wrapped up Wrap it in a bow, send it off, we'll be done with it. When they saw the courage of Peter and John and they realized that these were unschooled, ordinary men, they were astonished. And they took note that these men had been with Jesus. But since they could see the man who had been healed 
standing there with them, there was nothing they could say. And so they, they ordered Peter, John, and the other man to be withdrawn from the Sanhedrin, which is the ruling council, that's the name of their governing body. And then they conferred together. What are we going to do? What are we going to do with these men? Everyone in Jerusalem knows that they have performed a notable sign. And we can't deny it. Which kind of means they were thinking about trying to. But to stop this thing from spreading any further among the people, we must warn those guys to stop speaking to anyone in this name. So they called them back in again and, and commanded them not to speak or to teach in the name of Jesus. But Peter and John replied, which is right in God's eyes? To listen to you or to him? You be the judges. As for us, we cannot help speaking about what we have seen and heard. And after further threats, they let him go. They couldn't decide how to punish them because all the people were praising God for what had happened. And why weren't they? For the man who was miraculously healed was over 40 years old. And so these guys, did they, after they get out of there, they did, did, did they just hightail it out of Jerusalem? Did they run for a cave somewhere, glad to be alive? No. They had breakfast with a man who was dead, and they could not put the wonder of that out of their minds. Their fear was gone. Their concerns were all sent to the back of the bus. So they went, and they gathered together again with the other Christians in the town who had been waiting and wondering and praying, what's going on with them? What's going to happen to us? They were wondering, we've seen this story before, are we going to have to go and watch two more crucifixions? So they meet back up. Paul, Peter, and John meet me with the rest of the group, and they report what had just happened. Then they decide they're going to have a prayer meeting. We get a record of the very first prayer meeting. This is the first recorded Christian prayer meeting. So it's obvious if it's the first, clearly they don't know how to do it, right? We could show them a thing or two now. But if you were there, what would you pray? That all just happened. What would you pray? You just got out of jail. You know how close to death you were. You know that the people who just released you were absolutely not for you. You're still in the city where you were just arrested. The same city that just had arrested Jesus killed Jesus about two months ago. You barely got out alive. And now you're gathering with a bunch of other Jesus followers. And you know that you're probably being watched. You know that you're probably being followed. How would you pray? What do Canadians pray? Here's what happened. 24. When they heard this, they raised their voices together in prayer to God. They said, Sovereign Lord, you made the heavens and the earth and the seas and everything in them. And what they're doing here is they're quoting from the book of Psalms. You're all over it. You're in control. You made it all. And even though it didn't look like God was in charge, it looked an awful lot like Caesar Tiberius, Emperor Tiberius was in charge. They declared, no God, you are in charge. And so 25, you spoke by the Holy Spirit through the mouth of your servant, our father David. 
And then they begin to quote from the Psalms again. And they say, why do the nations plot and the people's, why do the nations rage and the people's plot in vain? And the kings of the earth and the rulers, they band together against the Lord and against his anointed one. Here they're quoting from what uh, is considered a messianic psalm. This is a psalm, which is like a poem, a song that predicts and describes the Messiah. That The Jewish people believed that oftentimes the prophets and the writers of their scriptures, those, those guys in the past, would write about a coming day and a coming anointed one, a coming Messiah, a coming Savior. They didn't just believe that, that David was talking about stuff that was happening around him. This was written a thousand years before Jesus. David was, was, was looking forward to the day when God would send his anointed one, that special leader, the Messiah. And so they quote the Psalms that these Jewish believers believe that what, what David was speaking about, what he was looking forward to, what all the prophets were looking forward to had happened. That God has fulfilled his promise. He sent his anointed one. The anointed one is Jesus. And then they, they pull out of the psalm again, and, and they start to pray, and they pray the following, verse 27. Indeed, Herod and Pontius Pilate met together with the Gentiles and the people of Israel in this city to conspire against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed. We recognize that uh, the one David talked about, the one the prophets pointed towards, is our master, Jesus. They did what your power and will decided beforehand should happen. None of this took us by surprise. That means that we don't need to worry. And we are not afraid. But we do have a request, okay? So now, God, please protect us. Watch over us. Keep us safe from anything. Keep our, cause our portfolios to grow, our waistlines to shrink, and our kids to get scholarships. It's funny. <laughs> it's a little embarrassing, isn't it? And we, we pray little prayers. And maybe that's why so little happens. Here's their prayer. Now, Lord... Consider their threats and enable your servants to speak the word with great boldness, fearlessness, confidence, to which we would probably say, hey, hold on, people. Stop and think about this for a minute, all right? Wasn't it that boldness, that fearlessness, that confidence that just got you thrown in jail? I think you got that part covered. We need to back that part up, tone that bit down. But this version of Christianity, this is a vision of the Easter impact that inspired heroic living, that fueled by heroic prayers. There was once a version of Christianity that inspired people to pray outside the family and friends circle. They saw something that was going on for the entire world, in the entire world, and they prayed accordingly. So stretch out your hand. Not on our behalf, not for our benefit. Stretch out your hand to heal and to perform signs and wonders through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. 
Stretch out your hand that the world may know that Jesus is your one and only son. And Luke says, after talking to the people who were, who were there, he records this for us in verse 31. He says, after they prayed, the place where they were meeting was shaken. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and spoke the word of God boldly, with confidence, fearlessly, in spite of persecution. Now, when, when Luke describes the first century Christians speaking boldly, it did not look anything like what has become uncomfortably common in our world. Where we see signs and chants that yell, God hates you. God hates the world. It's too late to pray. Your time has come. You're doomed. You deserve hell. Give up. No peace for the wicked. Judgment. That's not bold. That doesn't reflect Christianity. That doesn't reflect Jesus. This isn't bold. This is in the way. This isn't accurate. This isn't effective communication. But when the first century Christians went out and they spoke the word of God boldly, they did it in such a way that they drew people to Jesus. They increased by hundreds and then eventually they were increasing by the thousands. Their boldness had nothing to do with their doctrine. Their boldness, their confidence had nothing to do with theology. Their boldness was not about heaven. And their boldness was absolutely, definitely not about hell. Their boldness wasn't about telling their neighbors why their personal habits and choices were sinful and evil. Their boldness didn't even involve sin. Their boldness was about a single event that is at the very core, the very center of everything we believe as Christians. And Luke tells us, verse 33, with great power, the apostles continued to testify to the parables of Jesus? Nope. To the teachings of Jesus? Nope. To the activities, to the miracles of Jesus? Nope. To the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. Their confidence was not linked to a sudden rise in personal influence. There was no change in the political climate. Their confidence was completely rooted in, found in, built in the resurrection. It was the Easter effect. Because they believed that Jesus rose from the dead, they were fearless. Their fearlessness translated into selflessness. Because when you no longer fear loss, you become more selfless. You become more compassionate. When you no longer fear loss, you become more generous. You stop living from a view of scarcity and you live now from abundance. And then it became the generosity, the compassion and the selflessness of those first century Christians that caused that pagan, fearful, selfish culture to learn, to want to lean in more. And do you know why we can fear not? Do you know why we can live with boldness as Christians? Do you know why we can be confident in our faith? Confident about what we believe? It's not because our candidate gets elected. It's not because terrorism is eliminated. It's not because the minimum wage 
is raised or isn't raised, the reason we have confidence, the reason we live without fear, regardless of what is happening around us, is because God raised Jesus from the dead. That's Easter. And that's the Easter effect. It changes us. It frees us to live differently, to live freely. Christians do not believe that Jesus rose from the dead because the Bible tells me so. Christians believe that Jesus rose from the dead because Matthew, who was an eyewitness, tells us so. And he wrote about it. And Mark, who was close friends with a whole group of eyewitnesses, wrote about it and believed it. Luke, who took the time to thoroughly investigate all the facts and to interview the people, wrote about it, and he believed it. Peter, who was an eyewitness, who was one of Jesus' best friends, wrote about it and believed it till the day he died. John, who was an eyewitness about it and believed it. And James, James, the brother of Jesus, became convinced that his, that the, that his brother, the guy that he grew up with, died and was resurrected. He did not believe before the crucifixion, but he believed after the resurrection. And, and then, then he goes on to become a leader in the church, and he believed it, and he wrote about it. After the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus, James would refer to his brother as his Lord. And that's why we believe Jesus rose from the dead. Because he lives, we can face tomorrow. And because he lives, we need no longer live in fear. Because he lives, we can be confident. Because he lives, we can be bold. Because he lives, we can be generous. Because he lives, we can be compassionate. What will our once upon a time story be? When, when the story is told about us in the future looking back, what will they Say, what will the story be about us? The nation trembled because of things happening in the world and because of things happening in our own home country. People were looking to the government for help, for hope, and for salvation. And as the rhetoric got nastier and nastier, and people took sides, and compassion disappeared, and as the racial divides got deeper and deeper, relationships became worse and worse as people began not to trust there were among us those who seemingly had no fear. They were informed, but they weren't worried. They were responsible, but they were compassionate. They, weren't, they were very involved, very engaged, but they were not divisive. They had personal convictions. They were men and women of principle, but they were not judgmental. They were not mean-spirited. They were the Christians. And the worse things got, the better they became. We were better because they were among us. How will the story go? Because we don't go to church. We are the church. We are stewards of faith for our generation. We set the tone. We set the pace for the next generation. Therefore, therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us throw off everything 
that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles. Let us throw off our fear. Let us throw off our selfish living. Let us throw off our quick condemnations. Let us throw off everything that gets in the way, everything that causes us to back down. And let us run the race. Run with perseverance the race, the, the, the road trip that marked out for us. And we say, eyes up, fixing our eyes on Jesus the pioneer and the perfecter of our faith, for the joy set before him. He endured the cross, scorning its shame, and he sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured such opposition from sinners so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. So that you will not grow weary and lose heart. Allow Easter the resurrection to impact the way you live, whatever it is, wherever it is that you're living. Allow it to infiltrate your family relationships and your work relationships, your casual acquaintances and your close friends. Let it even transform your relationships that are filled with enmity. It's worth it. And it is working. And Jesus says, fear not, follow me. Heavenly Father, thank you for the men and women who came before us. Thank you for all those who gave selflessly of their time, treasure, and talent to open doors and opportunities for us. Thank you for those who have gone before us and who, who passed the faith on to us. Thanks for men and women who have paid with their lives to ensure that we have a text that we can read. Thank you for men and women today who suffer because they claim to be followers of Jesus. Thank you for Jesus. Thank you for his loving gift of himself on our behalf. Thank you that you didn't stay dead, but that you raised him to life and you defeated death. Thank you that the resurrection of Jesus can lead us into a life of fearlessness and kindness compassion, confidence, and generosity lead on Jesus, our King. We are ready to follow. Amen.